Hello, I'm your host, Ari Kimmelfeld, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Schachter. And this is The Activist Podcast, a podcast about the people and the process of shareholder activism. We dive deep into the world of shareholder activism, exploring case studies to uncover the secrets behind successful campaigns, effective communication strategies, and the legal frameworks involved. All opinions expressed by myself and Mark are solely our own opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of the podcast and should not be relied upon as the basis of investment decisions. We may maintain positions in securities discussed in the podcast. It would be wrong to allow management to sway strategic decision-making based on numbers they then characterize as aspirational reach goals when missed. Management's inability or unwillingness to commit to their own targets during a time of benign macroeconomic conditions, the history of downward earnings revisions, and the degree of non-recurring and non-operating tactics used to manufacture earnings should prompt renewed discussions of the try-in analysis in the boardroom. As one top-ranked research analyst said to us regarding DuPont, if you cannot predict it, you cannot get paid for it. On today's episode, we're shining a spotlight on a name that's become synonymous with bold corporate campaigns, Nelson Peltz and Tryon Partners. He's the mastermind behind some of the most headline-grabbing efforts to reshape global giants such as Wendy's, Heinz, Cadbury, Mondelez, Ingersoll Rand, Procter & Gamble, and many more. But what sets him apart? His uncanny ability to spot hidden operational value, making the companies undervalued, and then wield his influence to unleash their full potential by realizing some of that value for him and his partners. It's not only the activists and his partners benefiting, but the real people taking the free ride are the other investors because the other investors can just sit tight, do nothing, spend nothing on a campaign and watch the activists go to work and improve value for everyone. Yep. Before we delve into Pelt's involvement with DuPont, let's take a moment to revisit some of his prior campaigns and the impact he's had in the past. What his prior targets are usually says a lot about an activist. Each activist has a different set of traits. Now, Ari came up with the idea, if you could put activists into like these hunter categories, what do they hunt for? What do they like? Where do they go? There's some way to classify them. There's some way to use qualitative information to categorize them. So before we jump into Peltz's investment in DuPont, I think it would be helpful to get a background on Nelson Peltz, where he came from, what are some of his prior investments. And then I also want to learn about DuPont. What was the company before Peltz invested? And maybe we can better understand how Pelt saw an opportunity based on DuPont's track record and their operating businesses. So if we're comparing the activist to the predator, let's try to understand where they're coming from, what they're interested in, and also the prey that they're interested in as well. There are many different types of activists, but they don't all go after the same things. And then some of them go after the same thing consistently. Like this is what they like. And they go through phases. There was a time when Icon really went to what seemed to be looking like raids. And then there was a time when he just went, this is just corporate fat and corporate stupidity. And uh, Pershing had the same thing, right? He had a little bit of activism in Gotham and then he had a little bit more activism, some short selling in Pershing phase one, and then there was just activism. And then now there's very little activism with Pershing. So who was Peltz? Peltz was a, a major player in the activist investing arena for decades prior to his DuPont investment. His investment firm, Tryon Partners, has a formidable track record of engaging with companies and enhancing shareholder value. But Peltz isn't just an investor. He's a seasoned strategist who meticulously selects his targets and executes with precision. An Ackman campaign you can understand in an hour. A Peltz campaign is going to take you a week. DuPont was performing better than their peers. DuPont beat the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones over the last five years 
and there was nothing that stood out as, hey, we have a problem here. So when Peltz took his position in DuPont and said, we have to overhaul this company, break it up and do all sorts of things. Everyone's like, what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And DuPont doesn't look broke. Yeah. And it was outperforming the index, the general index, as well as the industry index. So there was probably some confusion as to why an activist is targeting a company that doesn't really have any problems, at least on the cover. Right. DuPont was from a rare breed of conglomerate companies. DuPont was founded in 1802. Today, they're an industrial giant with a storied history. For decades, DuPont has been on the forefront of innovation in chemicals, materials, agriculture. They're known for products like Teflon, Kevlar, Tyvek. Tyvek is cheating on housing. So think about that. More household formations, DuPont's doing well. Basically, when you're a conglomerate, you're always winning somewhere. DuPont shapes industries, and they've touched countless aspects of our daily lives. A perfect example of DuPont's evolution from just a chemical company to a prominent innovator in multiple industries comes from a quote from the CFO in 2013, where he's like, there might be a perceived identity of DuPont as a chemical company, but that's been evolving and changing over time. Now we're more about integrating biology and chemistry. That quote really sums up the ethos of DuPont. There are always coming up with new products that didn't exist before, but create a world that we get so accustomed to that we can't imagine without. And so they build a moat around creating necessary products to meet the standard of living that we are used to, such as creating Freon for refrigerators and air conditioners, something that most Americans couldn't live without. But before DuPont, these innovations didn't exist. Most houses in the country have Tyvek insulation or moisture barrier paper. And that was not something that was a part of the building process prior to DuPont. And probably without it, you'd have a lot of major issues with building homes and the quality of life. Well, it allowed for us to be able to build the way we do. If not for that, we wouldn't be able to have houses in the modern 21st century that we have. And DuPont also evolved over time. Now they're known for some of their chemical and agriculture innovation, there was an evolution to DuPont. And the evolution was over a few centuries, being that it's already in its third century. But let's go through some of these different parts in the life of of DuPont, the business. The story begins in 1802, when DuPont was founded by Eleutherian Irene DuPont, using capital raised in France and gunpowder machinery imported from France. He started the company at the Eleutherian Mills on the Brandywine Creek near Wilmington, Delaware. This was two years after DuPont and his family left France to escape the French Revolution and religious persecution against Huguenot Protestants. The company began as a manufacturer of gunpowder. That's because DuPont noticed that the industry in North America was lagging behind Europe. And this was critically important because this is the ethos on which DuPont, the same DuPont that Peltz took his position in, was built. And that is see an opportunity and execute wherever the opportunity might lie, regardless of industry. Yep. So they saw someone doing it really well. Gunpowder manufacturing was done correctly. It was a well-oiled machine in France. In the US, not so much but there was still a demand for it. And so take that skill and transplant it to a much bigger market. And that was very successful because the company grew really quickly. And by the mid 19th century, DuPont had become the largest supplier of gunpowder to the United States military. They were supplying at one point, one third to one half of the powder used by the Union Army during the Civil War. And an interesting note is that the Lutheran Mill in Delaware is now a museum and a National Historic Landmark. So at what point did DuPont go from just manufacturing gunpowder to 
chemicals and agriculture and basically how did it become the behemoth that it is today? Great question. So DuPont continued to expand and they moved into production of dynamite and smokeless powder all within the same manufacturing capacity and industry. And then in 1902, DuPont's president, Eugene DuPont, died when he was only 61 years old and the surviving partners sold the company. But you know who they sold it to? Family. They sold it to three great grandsons of the original founder. Charles Lee Reese was then appointed director of the company and he began to centralize their research department. So effectively, he created the first R&D for DuPont. The company went on to purchase several smaller chemical companies, another key theme of the DuPont story. And in 1912, these actions generated government scrutiny under the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, approximately 20 years old at the time. So the law was relatively new. It's not like there were many precedents set up for how they would arbitrate the law and where the courts would side with. And at that time, the courts declared that the company's dominance of the explosives business constituted a monopoly and the courts ordered a divestment. The court's ruling led to the establishment of Hercules Powder Company and the Atlas Powder Company. And at later points, both were merged into other companies carrying different names. But to some extent, they're both around today. DuPont retained the single base nitrocellulose powders, while Hercules took the ownership of double base powders. So after the divestment, DuPont developed the improved military rifle line of smokeless powders. And in 1910, DuPont released a brochure titled Farming with Dynamite. And they even provided instructions on how to use their dynamite products to remove stumps and obstacles efficiently. So DuPont created their own funnels and necessity for the products that they developed as opposed to the reverse. And that's very similar to what Steve Jobs did many, many years down the road. In 1914, Pierre S. DuPont acquired stock in General Motors. He later joined GM's board of directors and eventually became its chairman. DuPont further supported GM by purchasing $25 million worth of GM stock. In today's dollars, that's about $730 million. And in 1920, six years later, Pierre S. DuPont became the president of General Motors, leading the company to become the world's top automobile manufacturer. In 1957, because of DuPont's significant influence within GM, the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914 compelled DuPont to divest its shares of GM. DuPont could have been in vehicles today. There could have been Tesla, Ford, your German companies, DuPont, Shortly thereafter, DuPont invented Teflon. So Teflon is one of the most known products of the modern age. It's used in various products, including cookwares, clothing, personal care products, and manufacturing. That was invented in 1920 by DuPont. During World War II, DuPont, along with around 150 American companies, provided patented technology and resources to the Germans. And then in 1943, the Nazis seized DuPont's assets and those of other American companies at the time as well. The company's president at the time, Irene DuPont supported Adolf Hitler financially since the 20s. DuPont was ranked 15th among U.S. corporations in wartime production contracts. That was all because of its invention of nylon, which contributed to parachutes, powder bags, and tires. DuPont also played a huge role in the Manhattan Project, where they operated the plutonium plant in 1943. They also built the plant that made the hydrogen bomb. So this is why DuPont has a storied history. Close to a half century later, in 1981, DuPont made a significant move by acquiring acquiring Conoco. Now, today, everybody knows of ConocoPhillips, a major American oil gas producer. This strategic move ensured a stable supply of petroleum feedstock crucial for manufacturing its various fibers and plastic 
products. So at the time, DuPont was looking to shore up their supply chain and they figured, hey, we use petroleum products or derivatives all the time. Let's figure out what we can do here to solve this. So they took something that was really unconventional for a company like DuPont, where they're known for their innovative and adaptive nature, and they ventured into the oil and gas industry. And then they aggressively pursued the opportunity. The acquisition ultimately placed DuPont among the top 10 US-based petroleum and natural gas producers and refiners. It was the result of a fierce bidding war with the prominent distillery Seagram Company, which subsequently became DuPont's largest single shareholder, securing four seats on the board of directors. However, in 1995, DuPont announced the deal to repurchase all shares held by Seagram after being approached by Seagram's CEO, Edgar Bromfram Jr. And in 1999, DuPont took another strategic step, spinning off Conoco and divesting all of its shares. Conoco later merged with Phillips Petroleum Company to become ConocoPhillips. But in the same year, 1999, DuPont expanded its reach by acquiring the Pioneer Highbred Agricultural Seed Company. Again, this is all the same company that started out many years ago, simply manufacturing gunpowder and selling it to the U.S. military. This is the same DuPont. So in more recent times, DuPont has positioned itself as a global science company with a vast workforce of over 60,000 employees and a global scale and a diverse product portfolio. However, in the years leading up to Peltz's investment, and ultimately involvement with the company, DuPont faced a series of challenges. There were changes in consumer preferences, shifts in the global economy, and an evolving environmental regulations that all posed significant hurdles. DuPont's leadership had been grappling with these issues, but the pace of change was not matching the demands of the investors. For example, DuPont benefited from the energy boom that furnished inexpensive natural gas for its U.S. production. However, the demand for many of its products that go into consumer goods suffered from the lackluster economic growth, especially in Europe. Additionally, the commoditization of some chemicals made it even more difficult for DuPont's bottom line. So as the general consumer and global macrosis began setting in and impacting DuPont, Peltz grew concerned with the company's future and how the company would be impacted, knowing how the company has adapted over time and saw an opportunity to set a new strategic direction for the company. So for some reason, when Peltz made his investment in DuPont, there was quite a bit of surprise on Wall Street. Why was Peltz going after such a company? So let's try to get into the mind of the spectator in why they're surprised by this investment. In, in an article by the Wall Street Journal released about the same time as the Tryon investment, Wall Street Journal said, DuPont shares have more than doubled since Ms. Coleman became CEO in early 2009, closing at $59.37 on Wednesday. The gain is better than the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index and the performance of its close competitors, Dow Chemical and Monsanto. But its revenue rose only 3.6% in 2012 to 34.8 billion and was flat in the first six months of 2013. So this was the sentiment of the market. DuPont seems like it's outperforming its peers. It's outperforming the S&P. It's doing all right, not great, but not necessarily the prey that you would think an activist investor like Peltz would target for an activist campaign and what will lead eventually to a proxy fight. And more specifically, just to quantify it, a $100 investment in DuPont in 2008 would have returned 214% by 2013, whereas the same investment in the S&P or the Dow Jones would have only returned 128% or 117% respectively. And to add to that, the same $100 investment in Monsanto, DuPont's arch rival, would have returned a loss of about 8% for the same period. So Peltz's interest in DuPont began to materialize in late 2013 
and Triumph Partners disclosed a $1.3 billion stake, which was then 5.8 million shares, or 2.2% of the company at the time. As with his previous campaigns, Pelz didn't come to DuPont with a one-size-fits-all approach. It wasn't always that he came in and he wanted to do some M&A. It wasn't that he came in and wanted to see it on the board. His campaign was really specified to the operations of DuPont. And he had models that indicated the specific changes that he wanted, as well as many decks, to try to communicate what he wanted for the management to do differently at DuPont. So one of Peltz's main concerns was the fact that DuPont was such a massive conglomerate. And when you have such a big company, there are going to be slices within that conglomerate that are high growth and really profitable. And there are going to be slices that may be losing the company money or that are low growth and low profitability. And he thought that the companies that are doing really well and are growing quickly and are profitable should be spun out of this massive conglomerate, which might not be giving the light of day to the companies that deserve it. Our skepticism is rooted in the fact that 44% of the new DuPont is low growth, volatile, and commoditizing with annual revenue growth and pre-tax operating income growth from 2007 to 2013 of 1%. The other 56% of new DuPont is comprised of one proven growth business, agriculture, and two show-me business nutrition and health and industrial biosciences that have never achieved their sales growth and margin targets. We're concerned that management will continue to mispromise performance targets as New DuPont remains an inherently complex collection of disparate businesses with a high cost corporate overhead structure and that it will trade at a conglomerate discount as it will be neither a growth play nor a recovery play. The 2013 fourth quarter earnings report and accompanying 2014 guidance reinforce our concerns. So he's basically saying that the conglomerate structure benefits mainly a capital allocator, perhaps a Warren Buffett with Berkshire Hathaway, that can take the free cash flow of the mature businesses and allocate them properly to the growing businesses. But when management is not so capable in capital allocation, the conglomerate structure hides the stars and then the laggards get more attention and more more capital than they deserve just because they're the biggest businesses. To determine and figure out exactly what Peltz's concerns were, we went through all of the letters that Nelson Peltz and his team sent to DuPont's management and head of the board. So the two main concerns that Peltz had is first, they're including a bunch of one-time gains in operating earnings, such as tax write-offs and some restructuring that occurred every single quarter. So there weren't necessarily one-time costs. And the second thing is a possible breakup of DuPont. So there's this growth business, there's a mature business that's clouding the performance of the growth agriculture business. So by splitting them up, you'll get the shareholders to value the growth business appropriately. So Peltz is running a $5 billion fund at the time and 1.3 billion, a significant amount of his fund is in DuPont. So where does he start? What's his first step? So Peltz being the operationally minded investor that he is, had his whole team come up with a new approach that they would like the DuPont management team to implement. And so they reached out for the first time in late June 2013. And their goal was to discuss the business and present a few of these initiatives that they've come up with for management. So in the first letter on November 5th, Tryon reaches out to Mr. Cutler, who is the lead director at DuPont, and says that Tryon is frustrated that despite repeated attempts to engage in constructive dialogue over four months, Tryon had only two meetings, once with senior management and once with the chair and CEO, Ellen Coleman. They said, we're disturbed by the lack of interaction. Of all the investments Tryon has ever made over the years, 
client has never experienced a management team so reluctant to engage in dialogue. DuPont also refused trying the right to attend an investor group field trip to DuPont Pioneer on November 19th. So despite DuPont having a seemingly good quarter by beating earnings expectations by four cents, Trine called out that management included a $30 million benefit from an asset revaluation in performance materials, which was a joint venture and a one-time tax rate benefit of nearly 800 basis points. And these three items increased earnings by nine cents that quarter. And additionally, in December 2012, DuPont amended its reporting policy to permanently add back several income state expense items, such as pension and retirement benefits, which amounted to 17 cents per share. DuPont earns 45 cents in a quarter and 26 cents of that is from financial engineering. And just to quote the letter, it says, we're troubled that the company includes one-time gains and tax benefits in operating earnings, but excludes ongoing pension and post-retirement expenses and significant items that negatively impact the income statement quarter after quarter. The ask is thus far, we have not asked to meet with members of DuPont's board of directors. However, based on the lack of interaction with management, Trine and Calsters are now requesting a meeting with you, Alex Cutler, and perhaps other directors. As lead director, we understand that one of your responsibilities, if requested by major shareholders, is to ensure that you're available for consultation and direct communication. With deadlines for shareholder proposals and director nominees fast approaching, time is of the essence. So it's using this rule-based approach. The rule is that as lead director, you have a specific role, and that is to ensure that any requests by shareholders, you're able for direct communication. And so it's leveraging that to try to get communication with Alex Cutler, the lead director, and to start implementing some of their ideas and initiatives. So in the letter that Alex Cutler wrote back to Tryon, he tries to address all the points that Peltz made in his letter. He says, immediately following management's initial meeting with Tryon, the board of directors received the summary of the discussion. That following week, the Tryon materials were reviewed by the board of directors. And then over the next several weeks, our management team spent considerable time and internal resources on a comprehensive analysis of the Tryon proposal. Our CFO, members of the finance team, and our two special financial advisors, Evercore and Goldman Sachs, met in New York with Tryon on September 18, 2013. Both parties discussed their perspective. Among other matters, our team pointed out significant one-time and ongoing costs that were not accounted for in the Tryon proposal. Tryon offered to send DuPont their financial model, and the parties agreed to continue working and to set up a subsequent meeting. Having received Tryon's financial model, a follow-up meeting was then scheduled for October 16th to address Tryon's financial model in more detail. One day before the scheduled October 16th meeting, our CEO and CFO responded to Mr. Garden's demand to speak with Ellen Coleman. During that call, Mr. Garden delivered an ultimatum, accept Tryon's proposal to split DuPont into four companies, elect an unidentified industry insider to the board of directors, or face a public campaign. In light of Tryon's unexpected demands, a DuPont representative then called Tryon to postpone the meeting scheduled for the next day. And then on October 25th, 2013, Ellen Coleman and Nick Fernandakis telephoned Mr. Garden, communicated that DuPont's board of directors' decision to separate our performance chemical division, as well as review our quarterly results. They also communicated that DuPont's board of directors had carefully reviewed Trine's proposal and Mr. Garden's request for board representation. Ellen and Nick report to the board of directors reject Tryon's proposal and determined not to nominate Mr. Garden for election to the board. So after responding to Tryon's accusations, basically line by line, event after event, then addresses how much value they've created for shareholders. After responding to Tryon's accusations that they have been poorly communicating with Tryon over this time, going line by line of Peltz's letter, he then focused on how much value they've created for shareholders since 2008. DuPont's total shareholder return has been 196%, nearly double the 116% for the S&P 500 and 101% for DuPont's proxy peers. Also, DuPont has returned more cash 
cash to shareholders by the way of dividend and share repurchases than the average of the S&P 500 and DuPont's proxy peer. So the fact that DuPont had good performance relative to its benchmark made the attacks from trying about poor management and the need to split up the business a lot less credible. There was an attitude of, if it's not broken, why fix it? But in the meantime, many big shareholders had a feeling of what harm can Peltz do? He has a great reputation. He's stellar for implementing turnarounds like he did at Snapple and Wendy's and some other companies. So why not accept Peltz to the DuPont board? So after hearing back from Sandy Cutler, who's the lead director on DuPont's board, try and respond to every point and every accusation that Sandy made, at leaving no room for points that were unresponded to. So try and said, we look forward to meeting you in December and appreciate your prompt response. Before that meeting, we thought we would respond to your November 11, 2013 letter to clarify a number of the points that you raised. Since the tone of your letter suggests that Tryon has been aggressive and demanding, culminating in an ultimatum to join the board of directors. To the contrary, we believe we've been constructive, respectful, and patient in spite of the dearth of communication and an apparent unwillingness to engage on the part of the company. We also understand that your view of the facts may be colored by input you're receiving from management and, therefore, we would like to provide you with our perspective. As long-term investors, with approximately $1.3 billion invested in DuPont, we're highly motivated to see management and the various businesses that comprise DuPont thrive. We believe the initiatives presented by Tryon are a means to an end. Tryon then reiterates its main points and says, as they increase the probability of eliminating the margin gap with competitors by reducing complexity and bureaucracy and eliminating substantial holding company costs, we believe they will create a valuation re-rating as investors are able to appropriately value DuPont's higher growth businesses and allow investors to benefit from the cycle and improve margins in the remaining businesses. We applaud the decision to separate the performance chemical business, but are concerned that by itself, the separation is not enough to optimize shareholder value. The remaining company will be a collection of disparate businesses inherently complex with a high cost corporate overhead structure, likely to trade at a conglomerate discount as it will be neither a growth play nor a cyclical recovery play. We're concerned management may be setting itself up for failure as positions DuPont as a growth company when 47% of the remaining business had annual revenue growth of 1% and EBITDA declines 3% from 2007 to 2012. So Tryon is reiterating the points regarding separating the business. It also refers to the poor communication that management had, and it's indicating that although some of your business is high growth and performing well, which is why the stock reacted nicely, but there is a portion of the business that is low revenue growth with EBITDA declining that is all bundled up in this conglomerate, but that could be benefited if you were to break this business up into two. And the next in the letter, they make sure to refer to the poor communication that management had, because it seemed like Sandy Cutler was refuting that point by saying how many times they've already met management and that management has this whole committee and they were bringing in Goldman Sachs and Evercore, but Peltz sees it differently. And so he wrote, as you point out, it took DuPont one month to have an initial meeting with Tryon and another two months until September 18th to have a second follow-up meeting. While not exactly a model of prompt constructive engagement with a large shareholder, we appreciate management has a business to run and we need to be flexible. You should know that during the eight-week period between the first and second meetings, Tryon offered several times to meet with DuPont's financial advisors and or a smaller subset of DuPont's team in order to discuss Tryon's financial model so as to help move the process along. With most of Tryon's investments at this point in the process, time is typically spent with members of the management team as well as the company's advisors to explain details and assumptions in the model and analyses. But those offers were rebuffed. Next, Tryon disputes Sandy's points that they did not account for the one-time cost in their earnings assumptions, which they claim not to be authentic in the DuPont earnings release. Regarding the September 18th meeting, you rightfully point out that the DuPont team expressed a point of view that significant 
current one-time costs and ongoing costs were not accounted for by Tryon. You should know that Tryon disagreed with that statement because in fact, it had modeled nearly $3 billion of one-time costs, including pension, financing, and debt make-all costs. Given that the company has publicly stated that the one-time costs associated with the separation of performance chemicals, nearly 20% of revenues, is approximately one to two cents per share, or approximately 12 to 24 million total, we believe this cost assumption is conservative. With regard to ongoing costs, Tryon made several conservative assumptions dealing with taxes. More than 600 million of annual incremental taxes was modeled. Pension and stranded costs, which we look forward to discussing with you in detail. With regard to stranded costs, Tryon explained to the DuPont team that based on its experience with numerous companies that have affected separations, Tryon believed that it's possible to neutralize stranded costs as standalone management teams can often eliminate unnecessary costs and maintain synergies through initiatives such as joint purchasing cooperatives. Most importantly, the conservative one-time and ongoing costs modeled by Tryon are more than overwhelmed by the benefits of Tryon's analysis, primarily because Tryon has assumed that management can deliver on its long-term growth and margin targets. The September 18th meeting exacerbated our frustration over the lack of interaction with management and or their advisors, as it was clear that, despite nearly three months having passed, the analysis of Tryon's work product was cursory. You should know that in addition to the financial model, Tryon has also agreed with DuPont's team to have a follow-up discussion on its analysis of Danisco. While management positions Danisco as an example of a successful and transformative acquisition transaction, Tryon's presentation shows that Danisco's margin actually declined after being acquired by DuPont, notwithstanding management's claim of $130 million of realized synergies. DuPont's advisors told Tryon that they could not reconcile Tryon's numbers, which they had in hand for nearly two months, at which point Tryon walked them through the calculations which were based on DuPont's public filings. The next day, Tryon emailed DuPont the file that sourced each publicly available number. So not only is Peltz and Tryon refuting the points made by Sandy Cutler, but it's making his point even stronger that their analysis was thorough, so was their model, but not enough attention to their work was ever paid by management or any of their advisors. And so much time has passed indicating that they really don't care about these investors, these shareholders, and they're not giving them time of day that they deserve. So since the December 2013 meeting, Tryon acquired an additional 466,000 shares and Tryon and Calsters have an aggregate ownership in DuPont of $1.6 billion at this point. The focus of this letter from Tryon to Sandy Cutler is on DuPont's operating targets, specifically where they mentioned 7% top line growth and 12% earnings growth. And their main concern is that management will not actually achieve these numbers and will then have to say that they're revising their targets yet again. As discussed, we support the recent strategic activities, including the planned investments of performance chemicals and glass laminating solutions and vinyls. However, we believe that by themselves, the moves are not enough to optimize shareholder value because we're skeptical that management will able to deliver on the promise of a higher growth, higher value, quote unquote, DuPont and achieve the promised 7% top line and 12% EPS growth. Our skepticism is rooted in the fact that 44% of the new DuPont is low growth, volatile, and commoditizing, with annual revenue growth and pre-tax operating income growth from 2007 to 2013 of 1%. The other 56% of new DuPont is comprised of one proven growth business, agriculture, and two show-me businesses, nutrition and health, and industrial biosciences that have never achieved their sales growth and margin targets. We're concerned the management will continue to mispromise performance targets as New DuPont remains an inherently complex collection of disparate businesses with high-cost corporate overhead structure that will trade at a conglomerate discount, as it will be neither a growth play nor a recovery play. The 2013 fourth quarter earnings report and accompanying 2014 guidance reinforce our concerns. So essentially, Tryon is worried 
worried that despite them beating Q4 2013 earnings, they were including specific one-time tax benefits and accelerated agriculture shipments. And so this basically borrowed $100 million from the next quarter and brought it into the Q4 2013 and boosted the annual earnings. At the same time, they mentioned that other segments were still underperforming compared to competitors and specifically what management set out as their targets, their goals. So although the company was doing well overall, when you actually cut it into the different slices within the company, there's growth, non-growth, and then the dogs that are just underperforming peers outright. So one example where Tryon disagreed with DuPont's strategy was in performance materials. The company admittedly over-earned in this segment for a couple of years, generating a margin of 20% in 2013 versus 2013 investor day targets of 16 to 18%. The main driver of this performance has been record low ethylene costs at the company's sole commodity chemical cracker. Given that New DuPont aspires to innovate with science and leverage R&D capital, we question the rationale for allocating resources to a pure commodity chemical cracker. Why not opportunistically monetize the value of the ethylene plant now when earnings are at peak levels? We believe the backward integration is unnecessary and exposes DuPont shareholders to potential future earnings volatility. So essentially, what Tryon is saying, DuPont Cherry picks out these individual subsets of really great growth, although not having this huge impact on the conglomerate as a whole, and then they over-earn that. They're like, oh, we'll do 16 to 18%, boom, 20%. And the reason for the 20% is because the record low commodity costs, nothing else is being changed. Further in the letter, Tryon emphasizes the board's commitment to holding management accountable for achieving a 7% top-line growth and 12% earnings growth. And I quote, as you explained to us in our meeting, management has promised the board of directors and the board in turn will hold management accountable for 7% top line growth and 12% earnings growth. The bottom of the 2014 EPS range is 33% below the promised target despite the company's expectation of a benign macroeconomic environment. In a year when management is assuming global GDP growth of 3%, China GDP growth of 7 to 8%, US housing starts are up 20%, and industrial production is up 4%, we believe that it's reasonable to expect management to achieve its performance targets. If not, what do the macroeconomic conditions need to be in order to achieve these targets? What if the macro weakens? If recent weakness in China and the emerging market persists, will earnings growth fall below the target by more than 33%? While management may they respond that 7% top-line growth and 12% EPS are long-term targets, we believe the board has made strategic decisions based on management's commitment to achieve these performance targets. It would be wrong to allow management to sway strategic decision-making based on numbers they then characterized as aspirational reach goals when missed. Management's inability or unwillingness to commit to their own targets during a time of benign macroeconomic conditions, the history of downward earnings revisions, and the degree of non-recurring and non-operating tactics used to manufacture earnings should prompt renewed discussion of the try and analysis in the boardroom. As one top-ranked research analyst said regarding DuPont, if you cannot predict it, you cannot get paid for it. Try and is basically calling out the fact that management overpromises and underdelivers time and time again. And these misses of their targets of 33% are significant and that Wall Street is not paying enough attention simply because the company overall is still doing pretty well. But Nelson is not looking at DuPont relative to its peers. It's saying there's so much potential for DuPont to do better if it were to be split up and you can actually see the different slices in the company, what's doing well, what's not doing well, that if we can have better results, why not have them? Why give management all of this bandwidth to be mediocre and present mediocre targets and then miss those targets and then try to cover them up in earnings with some one-time 
offsets. And lastly, Tryon made two more points, one about sherry purchases and the second about capital structure. Regarding sherry purchases, they praised DuPont for introducing a $5 billion sherry purchase program, but then they also urged them to provide a clear timeframe for the pace of the buyback beyond 2014. They questioned also the reduction in the diluted shirt count from 2014 and considering the historical timeframe for similar programs. Tryon suggested a reasonable completion target of year-end 2015 for the new $5 billion program. So they're making a comment about $5 billion is great, but we want more clarity. And then they're making a suggestion. How about the end of 2015? What do you think? The second thing was about capital structure and try and advocate for aligning it with Dow's net leverage ratio. They emphasized that there was a need for management to choose between high earnings or an efficient capital structure. So with a low net leverage ratio and a reduced pension liability, try and question the decision to redeem a $1.7 billion maturity rather than to refinance. So essentially they had this debt. Why would you pay it off? Why not just refinance it and continue it going forward, keeping the same capital structure that you had? So they highlighted the Dow's example of expanding their sherry purchase program while operating with a different capital structure. So the debate around capital allocation, share buybacks, and capital structure underpins the broader portfolio discussion. And try and argued that management must prioritize either robust earnings growth or an efficient capital structure, but not both. This aligns with Trine's strategy to create value by tailoring the capital structures to each business's cash flow and growth dynamics. He's saying that you can't do both. Either you're going to focus on your earnings growth or you're going to focus on being an efficient capital structure. So, and this is also why he wants to break the company up into three parts because different companies have different capital structure needs. And this is evident in the performance chemical spinoff where they had a low investment grade rating. All your different slices with, within this big pie, they have different capital structure needs. And right now it's not efficient and you can't be doing both at the same time. The, the capital allocation going on in DuPont, not only not opportunistic or efficient, but it's seemingly destructive. So almost a month later, Sandy Cutler sends a response to Tryon based on their meeting in December. So on March 5th, 2014, in a confidential letter addressed to Mr. Edward P. Garden of Tryon Fund Management and Miss Anne Sheehan, Director of Corporate Governance at CalSTRS, DuPont responded to their input and feedback from a meeting in December 2013. The letter acknowledged the value of shareholder input and expressed gratitude for their insights. And it also clarified that there might have been some confusion regarding the achievement of operating targets discussed during the meeting. DuPont reiterated its commitment to publicly announced long-term growth targets of 7% revenue growth and 12% operating earnings, endorsing management's plan to achieve these goals. Additionally, the letter addressed Trine's assertion in their letter that DuPont had employed non-operating tactics to manufacture earnings. DuPont firmly refuted the claims and asserted that the presence of strong governance procedures and controls over financial reporting and disclosures. The letter demonstrated DuPont's willingness to engage with shareholders and their commitment to long-term growth goals while addressing and correcting perceived inaccuracies in Tryon's previous communication. So then on September 16, 2014, Tryon writes another letter to DuPont. And between this letter and the last letter, Tryon bought an additional 800,000 shares. So they have around 6 million shares, but they're still short of close to 25 million shares that they're going to own at the peak. And the letter mentions, even after the spinoff of Performance Chemicals, which is expected to be completed in mid-2015, DuPont will remain an inefficient conglomerate 
characterized by five things. Excessive holding company cost, disparate businesses, bureaucracy and a lack of accountability, an inefficient capital structure, and a persistent conglomerate discount because it's neither a pure play growth company nor a cyclical recovery play. And then they go into each of these points. The conglomerate structure and resulting inefficiencies have led to subpar financial performance and low management credibility. Listed below are just some of the major missteps shareholders have endured. And here it goes into some of the examples of where DuPont lost serious shareholder capital. In 2012, DuPont announced the sale of its coatings business to private equity. At the time, coatings generated $339 million of EBITDA. Today, that business, now called Exalta, owned by Carlisle, generates $813 million of EBITDA, an improvement of 140% as Carlisle owners have reduced unnecessary costs. In August 2014, Exalta's private equity owners, Carlisle, filed an S1 to take the company public. The Exalta S1 discloses that pro forma EBITDA in 2011 was $568 million, $229 million or 67% higher than the $339 million originally reported by DuPont in the same year. So this implies that DuPont burdened the coding segment with $229 million of excess corporate costs in 2011, representing over 5% of the coding sale at the time. Next, DuPont transferred wealth to private equity owners by selling codings instead of spinning it off to shareholders tax-free. In 2013, DuPont received after-tax cash proceeds of $4 billion, or $4.37 per share for the coatings business. Tryon believes a standalone coating business would be worth $11.79 per share if coatings had been spun off tax-free, achieved the same operating improvement that private equity has executed, i.e. being run efficiently, and traded at a peer multiple. In effect, DuPont transferred $7.42 per share, or $6.8 billion to private equity investors at the expense of DuPont shareholders. Leaving $6.8 billion on the table, not only leaving it on the table, but giving it to someone else other than your shareholders, which are the rightful owners, because it doesn't affect you. When things are not run efficiently, especially in a conglomerate structure, and things just fall under the radar, and people don't really realize what's going on, $6.8 billion gets lost. And not only lost, like squandered, but given away, which feels worse, because the rightful owners of that were shareholders. And shareholders should have decided, by the way, whether they want to stay in this company or not. Spinning off Exalto gives them that opportunity. That's their right and their ownership and their decision to do that. Here you have management who, relative to DuPont as a whole, literally owns nothing, making the decision for all the other owners. So in another example of shareholder value destruction, in 2011, DuPont paid 12.2x EBITDA for Danisco, which was intended to provide more growth to their portfolio. Since that acquisition, Danisco's organic revenue growth declined by one-third and margins approximately half of what they were in 2010. So Peltz focuses on the transformation of DuPont over its history and sees how there were major fluctuations in performance and management and some of the key transactions and decisions that they made over time. And this is one of the reasons why he chose 2013 to start buying DuPont shares. That wasn't an accident. He says, since 1998, DuPont has been in a state of perpetual transformation, having divested or separated businesses generating more than $40 billion of revenue and acquired businesses generating nearly $12 billion of revenue. Yet 16 years later, the stock price declined 21% from its 1998 peak. Earnings are down since 2011. 2014 earnings per share are now expected to be $4.05, down from $4.32 in 2011. Despite spending $11.6 billion 
on net investments during the same time frame, excluding net capital invested in mergers and acquisitions of $1.7 billion. Management failed to achieve its target of 12% long-term earnings per share growth. I think this is something that really says a lot to a lot of public companies today. When you pause, zoom out, you actually get to see what's going on. And stock price is down over 16 years. Earnings are down. Expenses are rising. Investment is rising. Everything's rising, but it's not adding up to anything. And then again, you zoom back in and management's like, well, look what we did this quarter and look what we're going to do next quarter. But what effect is it having overall? Not much. And Pelz is basically pointing his finger to one critical fact. And that's that management isn't able to forecast the future results of the business. And it's creating these targets that it can never achieve and then has to resort to other means to fill the gap. In June 2014, DuPont lowered and or missed earnings guidance for the third consecutive year. After failing to achieve long-term operating targets presented at its 2011 Investor Day, DuPont lowered targets in six of seven segments at its 2013 investor day. DuPont's organic revenue growth and margins, the operating metrics that ultimately determine success or failure, trail peers in five of seven segments. DuPont's management has resorted to manufacturing earnings to meet guidance. In 2013, non-operating benefits contributed 27 cents of headline EPS. Such benefits include a pull forward of seed sales, one-time investment gains, and lower than expected taxes. During current management's tenure since 2009, Significant items, defined as one-time earnings addbacks according to the company, have totaled $2.3 billion, increasing EPS by 8% per annum on average. Addbacks, which are not extraordinary when they occur every year, have averaged $663 million annually over the past three years. DuPont has significantly underperformed diversified chemical companies and industrial conglomerates in total shareholder return and earnings per share growth over virtually all timeframes. As we have discussed, we believe DuPont should implement the following strategic and operating initiatives. So first, separate DuPont into Growth Co., which is made up of agriculture, nutrition and health, and industrial biosciences, and Cyclical Co., or Cash Co., which is made up of performance materials, safety and protection, electronics, and communications, in addition to the announced separation of performance chemicals. Second, commit to the elimination of unnecessary holding company costs, the implementation of zero-based budgeting, and a timeframe for best-in-class revenue growth and margins in each business by segment. Third, Commit to a shareholder-friendly capital allocation policy at the low-growth and highly cash-generative cyclical company CashCo and a prioritization of high return on invested capital organic growth initiatives at GrowthCo. Fourth, implement the following corporate governance initiatives. A, put an end to extraordinary charges or significant items. And B, commit to best-in-class transparency and consistency of reporting. These try-on initiatives will eliminate the inefficient holding company structure by creating two autonomously managed businesses. Three, including including performance chemicals. The separation is a means to an end, as we believe it will significantly increase the probability that the individual businesses eliminate the significant operational performance gap versus peers and achieve a valuation multiple re-rating. The coding case shows us a profit potential of DuPont if it was managed efficiently. According to the primary driver of value creation in our financial model is operational improvement, not a simplistic sum of the parts. We believe the try initiatives have the potential to double the value of DuPont's stock over the next three years. DuPont represents one of the largest positions in our portfolio, and we have recently increased our position. Tryon has a strong vested interest in the future of the company's businesses. We take pride in our reputation as a long-term shareholder with a proven history of working constructively with boards and management teams to implement value-added strategic and operating initiatives. We've discussed adding a Tryon representative and an industry insider to the board to ensure that shareholder perspectives are adequately represented. Yet that idea has been summarily rejected. Therefore, we will begin to meet with other shareholders to present our white paper and discuss 
our views. Ultimately, the shareholders will decide the right path forward for DuPont. In addition, we will continue to closely monitor DuPont's performance, and we strongly recommend that instead of dismissing our initiatives, board members meet shareholders without management, present to learn their views. We believe such a dialogue would be enlightening and provide the board with a valuable new perspective. This has been going on now for a year and a half, two years, and really not much is being done. Yeah, they started off by fighting back on every point, going point by point of the Pelts letters and refuting them. Then it decided to arm themselves with the best PR teams and giving some diplomatic rhetoric that didn't necessarily address what Pelts was saying and absolutely did not take any action to actualize the recommendations that Tryon was making in their letters and in the due diligence and the models that they were presenting. So at this point, Peltz and Tryon, they've exasperated all of their behind closed door options and they've decided to start taking these points that have a lot of validity and meat on the bone to shareholders and asking shareholders to vote in their favor at the upcoming shareholder meeting, and that's why they're going to pursue a proxy fight. In that quarter, Tryon spent $1.1 billion, based on our own calculations of the price at the time, acquiring 17,400,000 shares of DuPont. So when they said that ultimately it's the shareholders who are going to decide, they meant it. I'm curious if perhaps the reason for this major investment at this point, was it because Peltz saw the major opportunity or was it something more inorganic? where they just got an LP that gave them a billion dollars and you know they wanted to add some gunpowder to this campaign. I think this is part of Peltz's strategy and the overall activist strategy. If Peltz bought 1.3 billion right away and came out with all of his assertions, he'd be tapped out. There's no pressure. What are you going to do? There's no more dry powder for him to invest. Here, he comes in, buys 300 million. He says, hey, let's talk. And he goes and he puts forth his whole case. He very clearly articulates and details his plan and what he thinks and where the value lies. And they go back and forth. And as it escalates, he buys another half a million shares, another million shares. And then when it gets to the point where, okay, we're going to go to proxy, now it's really going to matter. Now it's time we really make that huge play. And I think it's part of the strategy. It's two different investors. Those are two different knockers. When you have an investor knocking at your door with 300 million, and you have an investor knocking at your door with 1.9 billion, yeah, you might still be the same 50, 60, $80 billion company. It's two different knocks. On February 11th, 2015, Tryon writes a letter to shareholders. Dear fellow shareholders, we're writing to you on behalf of investment funds managed by Tryon Fund Management, which currently beneficially owns approximately 24.6 million shares of EI DuPont, valued at approximately $1.9 billion. As one of DuPont's largest shareholders, our interests are directly aligned with yours. As stockholders, we have a collective responsibility to hold management accountable for continued underperformance and repeated failures to deliver promised revenues and earnings targets. It's simply not acceptable that earnings in 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2015, according to DuPont's own guidance, are all below earnings in 2011. You have an opportunity to ensure that the company's board of directors is focused on significantly improving long-term performance at DuPont by electing independent-minded, highly experienced directors to the board who have been nominated by a fellow stockholder. The 2015 annual meeting of DuPont stockholders is only a few months away. After extensive analysis, as documented in our white paper, we believe new perspectives and more robust oversight of management are necessary from the DuPont board. Since Tryon first invested in DuPont in March 2013, DuPont has announced several positive initiatives, such as announced spin-off of performance chemicals, Camores, the Fresh Start Cost Reduction Initiatives, a share repurchase program, 
and the appointment of two new independent directors. While we believe that Tryon has already made a positive impact at the company, we're concerned that the board has only taken actions in the face of outside pressure rather than consistently prioritizing stockholder value on its own. In addition, Tryon believes that much more can be done to optimize stockholder value and that management will continue to fail to achieve its previously announced financial targets of 7% revenue growth and 12% earnings per share growth. Had management met its financial targets since 2011, EPS would be 51% higher than it is today. As a result, we have nominated four highly qualified independent director candidates with experience and skills in areas critical to DuPont. Our nominees, Nelson Peltz, John H. Myers, Arthur B. Winkleback, and Robert J. Zada are ready to join the DuPont board and to assist the company with its plans and strategies. In Tryon's view, directors nominated by stockholders are more likely to be independent of management and therefore will hold management accountable and better represent stockholder interests. So in this pinnacle letter that Tryon writes on February 11th, 2015, it's now addressing shareholders directly. And it's reiterating some of the main points that it wants the DuPont shareholders to know right before it enters a proxy fight with DuPont's management. First, it starts off by going into how many shares they own. They want to show that their interests are directly aligned with the other shareholder interests and so they do that by highlighting the fact that they own 24.6 million shares, which is valued at approximately $2 billion. The next thing that they do is they highlight the fact that management has repeatedly failed to deliver on their promised revenues and earnings targets since 2011. And they add to that by saying that had they reached their financial targets in 2011, their earnings per share would be higher by 51% today. Next, they go into the four director candidates that they're trying to nominate. So they're introducing the campaign by saying, those are the problems. And then here are the people that we want to nominate to the board. And we think that these people can actually make an impact because they'll be more independent than the current directors who are nominated by management. And lastly, before they start outlining the specific activities that these nominated directors will do in collaboration with the DuPont board, they outline how the current management has also failed to create value by selling off some of these core assets for a discount to private equity and basically diluting the shareholder earnings while also underperforming and missing their target. They're pointing out all of the items that they would accomplish if they have that seat on the board. So first, they want the nominees to be open-minded for the best path forward, meaning that until now, corporate structure has been pretty forgiving with management underperforming on revenue growth and also margins. And to boost those things, the new nominees would have to try to change the incentives or split up the company in ways that the different segments can perform optimally with more specific targets. The second thing that they want to implement are reducing corporate costs so there are significant savings to the bottom line. I feel like that's a very standard act. It's always a hot button for an activist to touch. Yeah, you always want to cut out the costs that shouldn't be there. A little ironic that management themselves aren't always cost-centric and it takes an activist to say, hey, these cost structures are bloated or excessive and it's time to cut course. And that's kind of similar to the next point that they make in the letter, which is they want to assess the capital allocation, including organic investments in R&D, capital expenditures, and their industrial biosciences initiatives, basically making the company more efficient and cutting the, the costs while also increasing the dividend and focusing on shareholder returns.
clients. And the last thing is improving transparency of the business and aligning management's compensation with performance and then increasing management accountability to the actual promised performance and not having that target move around based on future performance. That's another hot button item. And it's also something that's very common in companies. It's a telltale sign of something that's going awry. And when management moves around different uh, compensation targets and ratios, and it's usually something there is not being met. The next point that they bring up in the letter which I find really interesting in terms of attack in communication and also highlighting what's important to shareholders. So when communicating with shareholders, they're extremely good on thinking about the incentives. Here, they're aligning themselves, Tryan, to the other shareholders by saying they own $1.9 billion in DuPont. And that was a significant part of their portfolio. And at the same time, they're comparing that massive stake in the company, which means they're definitely aligned with shareholders, to the opposite of management at DuPont, which owns approximately a total of $20 million. And at the same time, the CEO, Ellen Coleman, is selling her stock and she sold 54% of her shares since Trying got involved in March 2013. So there's clearly this contrast in incentives between Tryon and management. And who do you think is going to want the most for shareholders and increased shareholder return? Obviously, the one with the most stake in the game. And not only does management have very little in the game, but they're actually selling off their position. And so they have even less incentive to perform for shareholders than they did in the past when they were already underperforming. Basically, Trine's position is 90 times that of aggregate management's position in DuPont. So the next thing that they point out is the fact that the nominees that they're appointing to the board have a lot of experience in creating shareholder value on boards. And specifically, they have a lot of operating experiences managing other businesses. So they're not just the financial types that some other activists are known for notoriously, but they actually have operating experience. And so they're bringing that up because they're questioning and they quote, we wonder why management at DuPont is expending substantial management time and millions of dollars of stockholder funds to keep well-qualified stockholder nominees off its board. The real question is, what is DuPont's leadership afraid of? And I think this was a question that we raised from the beginning, which was what is Ellen Coleman and the board really afraid of getting a savvy member onto the board that could probably help them be more appealing on Wall Street, other shareholders, and increase shareholder return? They do have a great track record and they are proposing a plan all the way down to the model. What are they so afraid of getting a qualified member or two on the board. So her basic response when asked from shareholders and savvy investors why she wouldn't accept a try-in representative on DuPont's board was what specifically will they bring to the table? And I think to Peltz's defense, there was a lot of experience in operations and turning companies around that could probably have helped DuPont. And I think part of this is disruption to the board just because Tryon has a reputation for being a very disruptive board member. If we go back to Ingersoll Rand, there was a lot of shouting in the boardroom. There's also a lot of deviating from the agenda and basically where Nelson Peltz is trying to putting forth what he thought was best for the company. And so there was a fear from an entrenched board 
and management that's trying to operate the day-to-day of the business that an outsider who's quote-unquote focused on the short-term performance of the stock wouldn't have the long-term of the company in mind. And so despite his claims that he's operationally focused, I think management and the board was afraid of disruption and was really questioning whether his incentives were just for himself and shareholders in the short term. At the same time, DuPont wasn't going to expand their board. So it would come at the cost of existing directors. And I don't think that any of them were looking to give up their quarterly fees and the positions that they had. Yeah. And I think that goes true for directors. But it also holds true for management. And Ellen Coleman clearly set targets that she was not able to reach going back even before Peltz started his campaign. But this was one of the reasons why he started his campaign was that they kept setting their targets closer to what they did achieve only after the fact and then constantly missing them. And so her reputation for coming through on her promises was looking worse and worse. And as a a CEO, she had to be ambitious and, and had to set high goals. But the fact that now somebody was pointing a finger at this kind of behavior, she was probably scared that if he gets on the board, she's probably gonna leave along with some of her team. So it's understandable that they're afraid of pelts, not for what he's going to do to the company, but that he might replace management and some members on the board. After the final letter, a full-on proxy fight ensues. And this is going to be one of the biggest proxy fights of the decade, definitely by sheer size. And you have headstrong Ellen Coleman and headstrong Nelson Peltz. And they both had war chests to spend on a campaign. That's because they both had a lot at stake. For Peltz, he had a $2 billion investment. So spending 10, 15, $20 million on a campaign was pretty small expense ratio relative to what he could potentially gain. And for Ellen Coleman personally, she was making close to $80 million. So in order for her to stay, she knew she would have to win the proxy. And for the company, obviously, we're talking about a $35 billion in sales company can easily afford a few million dollars. Close to $70 billion in market cap. Ellen Coleman mentioned in an interview with Fortune, she says, you know me, I give it 100% until the last buzzer sounds. And she was referring to her uh, experience as a, a high school basketball team fierce competitor. Some odd 40 years later, and that hasn't stopped. So there were a few major victories before the the proxy vote occurred. And there was a lot of campaigning going on between Coleman and Peltz. And one of the victories was actually CalPERS, which was actually a big loss for Peltz because they were the ones backing Peltz in the beginning. They were actually the signatories in the letters, but they voted their 6.15 million shares with DuPont's full slate of, of board nominees. On the other side, there was a pretty big victory for Nelson Peltz and Tryon in late April. The proxy services, ISS and Glass-Lewis, they both recommended Nelson Peltz and Tryon as well as their nominees to the board. The expectation was that once you had ISS and Glass-Lewis on board, then you would also get the institutional holders. Yeah. So a, a big loss for Coleman was actually getting these institutions to vote for, for Peltz's nominees. And it's most likely that that would have happened because ISS and Glass-Lewis recommended their nominees. So that's usually what happens when ISS and Glass-Lewis recommends a slate. That's usually how the large institutions like the Black Rocks, the State Streets, vote their huge pile of shares. So it was a big loss for Ellen Coleman. And at the same time, the stock reacted and shareholders kind of preemptively 
voted what they thought would be best for the company since the stock rose 5% on the ISS news that they would back the try and slate. So clearly there's a lot of momentum going for Peltz. It seemed like now that they have these stamps of approval that they would also get the institutions. And not only did, would they get the institutions, but that's what the stock market was voting with their with their pockets. So it seemed like a lot of things were heading against Coleman and the DuPont board. But at the same time, Coleman set up at the start of this proxy fight an internal team with the sole focus of winning. I mean, that was her objective as well. And it became an essential function within DuPont. And they went out there and they were campaigning, meeting with a lot of large firms, like earlier you said, Calsters. And their goal was that if they could secure enough votes from the institutions, then they would be comfortable and they wouldn't have to worry as much of what the minority shareholders would be doing. So when you had ISS and Glass-Lewis come out there and recommend the Pelt Slate, you had Coleman going out to the people who would be reading the recommendations, and she was convincing them to actually just vote the DuPont Slate and keep everything as is. And I'm sure at the time, she was also telling them that they're going to be implementing these different changes, because publicly she was saying that as well. I mean, they were preparing to spin off Camorris, and they were working on further strategic vision. So it was the long relationship that she had with these other institutions and her vision and plan that she was campaigning on. And at the same time, Peltz began his discussion in 2013. We're two years in and shareholders who are betting on Peltz are like, this is taking a long time. So during the campaigning process, both Peltz and Coleman got some appearances on different news channels talking about why they should win. And they're campaigning similar to how presidential nominees campaign as well. And Coleman said that a proxy fight is like a campaign and the candidate is the CEO, meaning that whoever wins the campaign will replace the CEO. So if the incumbent management wins, then they'll stay. But if not, the CEO will have to be switched out. Another thing was that Coleman had exercised $80 million worth of stock options shortly before the proxy fight got underway. And this actually made her look really bad, even though the stock sales were made under a 10B51 automatic plan that were set up years before. So this $80 million of stock that she sold pretty much had nothing to do with the campaign, but it was just inconvenient timed. And it was something that Peltz was able to point out in the campaign when he got on CNBC, which actually probably won him some votes, being that he pointed out that management's incentives are clearly not aligned and they're demonstrating that by selling stock. And he mentioned it in his letter. To his point, he's fighting a campaign here and narrative matters, although this sale was forced regardless. So this campaign was actually very costly for DuPont. And according to the proxy statement, the defense against Tryon for DuPont was very expensive, costing around $15 million, which if you think about what actually goes into that $15 million, it's pretty simple. It's just consulting fees. So whether it's Goldman Sachs or Evercore, some other activist defense consultants, they're basically pocketing these dollars. So it takes a lot of money and time away from management and the company. Coleman also mentioned that this tangle with Peltz was one of the hardest things that she ever had to go through in her interview with Fortune. And she mentioned that an activist can make any assertion that they want, but it's frustrating because the CEO of a public company, it has to be true or else they go to jail. And that's the thing that they tell you the first day on the job. 
and that's what sticks with you. So it's hard for the CEO of such a major company, I think, with an $80 billion market cap at the time to stand up to an activist. And that's probably one of the reasons why they have so many advisors and attorneys telling them what they can and can't say, which makes it very hard for them to retaliate. It makes it very easy for them to be a target for an aggressive activist like Peltz who can just say, hey, by the way, why did you just sell? $80 million worth of stock, it's hard for her to come back and say, yeah, that's part of an option that I set in place a couple of years ago before you came into the picture. Because if something is wrong there, she might get sued. So there's a lot more at stake versus the entrepreneur, the shareholder can just make accusations without any repercussions, really. I think it's interesting to think about why Peltz didn't do the proxy fight in 2014 and why he waited. And I think Bill Ackman's comment around why didn't they do this earlier was regarding that 2014 opportunity to run a proxy fight. So I think there might have been some changing of of Peltz's mind a few times about whether or not to run the proxy fight, being that a lot of the changes that they had in mind were changes to a company that was already performing really well. They're well well above their peers. They're also outperforming the S&P. But there are pockets within the company that are underperforming that they tried to shine a spotlight on. And I think they did that successfully in their letters, but they weren't necessarily enough for Peltz to run a proxy fight because the company was doing well and they probably lacked the confidence that they would win the proxy. And so only after the stock didn't really do anything for two plus years, that's when they decided to uh, run the proxy. I think that could be the defense to Pelt as to why he waited until 2015. It could have also been a capital constraint. It wasn't until the fourth quarter in 2014, which is after the proxy date for the 2014th year, that Pelt bought the overwhelming majority of his position. In that quarter, he bought 17.4 million shares. It's very likely not the capital then. Yeah, that's a great point. We probably won't know what's going on behind the scenes, whether they were speaking to shareholders and only later they grew more confident that they would get certain votes or they were raising capital and they wanted to be able to capitalize as much as possible on a proxy fight and get a bigger stake. So that could definitely be true. So in mid-September 2014 was when they actually went public with its plan to break up DuPont. And that's when they released their white paper claiming that DuPont's earnings growth was lower than all of its competitors and that they had around $4 billion in excess costs and that they should be worth something around $120 per share. And I think they're only trading at like $65 per share. So I think just on that white paper news, which was mid-September 2014, the stock rose to over $70 just on that news. So even though Peltz lost the proxy fight, you can look at DuPont today. It's certainly not the same DuPont that it was then. And a lot of what he put forward got implemented anyways. Let's look at how that occurred. October 5th, a year later, DuPont releases that Ellen Coleman's going to retire next week. It was a big surprise because her tenure was ending much earlier than expected. And the surprise was that she won Peltz. You would think that now's the time to go on and chart the next decade for the company. So she steps down and coupled with the news release, they have a disclosure that DuPont's going to be lowering its earnings again and the outlook for that year as well. Yeah, and that's probably part of the reason why they decided to replace Coleman was because she got a little ahead of her skis in terms of setting targets that they couldn't really achieve and then adjusting earnings later on. And the board 
obviously took notice once Peltz pointed his finger at that Coleman leaving is a culmination of her not reaching the targets that she set out. So although Nelson Peltz wasn't on the board, it seems like a lot of what he would be doing was happening either way. The board woke up. The board was like, we're going to put a lot of these plans forward. They make sense and we'll work that way. And we don't know if Peltz kept meeting behind closed doors. It's very possible. I mean, he didn't sell the stock after losing. It was not like he was out. A year later, he was still in the stock. Yeah. And I think also even while Coleman was there, and even though Peltz lost the proxy fight and wasn't able to nominate the directors that he wanted, One of the people that he did have discussions with about trying to nominate them onto the board was Gallagly. And Gallagly and Breen were two people that Coleman nominated to the board once they announced their spinoff of Kimor's, which basically opened up two more seats on the board. And so they were able to, to bring these two people in. So even though this wasn't a way for Pels to say, look, I nominated these people and now they're on the board, he was having discussions and he wanted them on the board. And the outcome was the same, whether or not the method was what Pels wanted. I think the reason he wanted them on the board was because they were extremely experienced and they could probably bring ideas to the board that were not currently there. And ultimately, it benefited the company. And I think Breen ends up being the CEO that takes over Coleman. So it's pretty ironic that Gallagher and Breen are the two people that she brings on. And that was the beginning to the end for Coleman's time at DuPont, where she's been for a long time. She basically grew up with DuPont. Although Peltz lost the proxy fight, the articles, all the financial media had it as this great proxy battle loss. Based on the actions, not knowing that Peltz lost the proxy fight, it sounds like Peltz is on the board. We still had Peltz having his plans and initiatives being implemented. Coleman was out, the boards were out, and the board was actually putting forth plans that were in line with what Peltz wanted. So I think the ultimate determinant on whether an activist investment is successful is by focusing on the word investment. So there's the activist part of it, which is waking up management, having a proxy fight. But the ultimate point of being an activist is to yield a return. And that's why part of the activist investment is you have to buy shares and you expect that these shares are going to increase in value by either pointing a finger to how cheap the stock is or making effective changes in the company. And the activist part of this, one can say, failed because Tryon didn't win any seats on the board. They lost the proxy fight. But what ended up happening? So some of the people that Tryon wanted to nominate on the board ended up getting on the board and and actually into management. Right. So Breen ended up being the CEO. So that was successful. They ended up spinning off Kimors, which was one of the things that Tryon was saying in the beginning that they wanted to separate the cyclical low margin business from the high growth, higher margin business, the agriculture business. So that seems successful. It seems like DuPont is getting a new shape now since Tryon's investment and since all of these letters to let the public and most importantly, the board know what's going on at the company, fixing the earnings targets so that they're not revising these targets. Part of that criticism is what ended up eliminating Coleman from her seat as a CEO. So even though all the headlines said that he lost, that some of these changes were actually successful. And ultimately, what measures success is the return on the investment. And one might say that Bill's criticism of this investment is true, that it took too long to realize that return. But Peltz was pretty patient and that patience ended up being rewarded because what we did was we tried to track where and how and when Peltz made his money on DuPont. We went through each quarter and summarized the 13Fs and tried to weight the 13F 
purchases for each quarter based on the volume in the stock. And so we got the pricing and volume data for each day that the stock was trading and basically weighted the price more heavily on days that the volume was above the average with the assumption that those were probably the days that Tryon was in the market buying. Although we could be wrong, but that was just one way to try to figure out what prices within that quarter were the prices that Tryon was buying their stock for. But ultimately, we have this weighted average quarter by quarter of how much Tryon was paying for the stock. And we know, according to their 13F filing, how many shares of stock that they bought. So summarizing each quarter for how many shares they bought, what they paid for them, and then how many shares they sold and how much they sold them for using a similar method, we were able to calculate that they spent $1,891,473,000 on their stock and they sold it in 2017. And they actually made most of their money in the third and fourth quarters of 2017, which means that it actually benefited them that they were patient enough. They waited for some of these changes to actualize, for Comoros to be spun off. In quarter three of 2017, the stock was in the 90s. And then in quarter four, the stock broke $100 per share. And that's when Tryon sold the bulk of their shares, which led to a great return. And so they bought their shares for $1.9 billion and they sold their shares for $2.48 billion. So in total, they made about $588 million dollars. What we don't know is the percent return. And we don't know that because we know how much they spent, we know how much they earned on the proceeds, but we don't know how much they borrowed. And it could be that they leveraged their position significantly, where perhaps they only put in 500 million in equity and borrowed the other 1.4 billion to generate a return of 550, 580 million dollars. In that case, it would be a 100% return. But just cash on cash return based on this 588 million and 1.9 billion invested, it's about a 31% return or a 6.16% IRR. But that's not considering the fact that they could have borrowed and that could have magnified their returns for this period, which is very possible being the fact that their fund was between four and $5 billion. So that's an interesting fact. And I think this is something that a lot of the press and articles that you'll read when you look up the DuPont campaign really miss. They focus on the fact that Tryon lost the proxy. They didn't get the seats on the board, that Coleman defied the odds and won with a lot of the retail investors, despite the fact that she lost ISS and Glass-Lewis's recommendation. And so this was a victory for Coleman and a loss for Tryon. But at the end of the day, a lot of the changes got implemented that Tryon wanted, that they were indicating in the early letters. And at the end of the day, money was made by Pelt. We figured out that they made about $588 million on this investment. And it could have been a really nice return, especially if they used some debt. So yes, Bill, this might have taken a little too long, but I'm sure you'd take $588 million today with some work. Thank you very much for listening to this episode on the Activist Podcast about DuPont. Please subscribe if you're interested in hearing more Activist Podcasts. And if you have any comments on this episode or recommendations for future episodes, please email us. Our email is theactivistpodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Ari Kimmel. Thanks and speak to you next time.